It's one thing to falsely claim something, right? It's quite another to falsely claim something in order to trick someone else into subverting their responsibilities. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, August 9th. Today, I'm joined by Eric Gardner to examine and explain the federal indictment against Donald Trump for trying to overturn the 2020 election. Trump's legal team is mounting a free speech defense for the former president, and Trump himself is advocating for a new judge in the case and a change of venue from Washington, D.C. But as Eric explains, all of their maneuvering is probably futile. And later, Abby Livingston joins Ben for an inside look at how Kirsten Cinema's abandonment of the Democratic Party could end up helping Democrats in the end. We'll discuss all that and much more on today's episode of Powers of Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad Bed Cooling System is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for Powers That Be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.me slash powers because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Welcome to The Powers That Be. I'm joined today to talk about the law with Bob Law Law. Just kidding. With Eric Gardner, <laughs> our legal yeah. expert. Eric, I uh, hope you got the Arrested Development reference. Uh, even I can't say that sometimes. Donald Trump is facing 78 criminal charges stemming from three indictments, two federal, one in Manhattan. The latest one from Jack Smith about election interference <laughs> seems to be the most serious, according to all pundits. But I, you know, one thing I, I like about you is you do just a very good job of explaining legalese to normies, or at least to me. I want to ask you about the Trump legal team's putative defense, at least, or how they're talking about the case and what you see <laughs> as whether that's sound or not. But first, like, just for people who are tuning in, 
who aren't obsessively watching CNN, can you just like outline in simple terms what the four big charges are in this federal indictment? Sure. Well, let me just start very broadly. It's one thing to falsely claim something, right? It's quite another to falsely claim something in order to trick someone else into subverting their responsibilities. And this indictment alleges the latter. Trump isn't just claiming that the election is stolen. He and his cohorts are saying false things in order to get officials to certify, to transmit, and to recognize a fraudulent slate of electors. And that is what we call it a conspiracy. The indictment lays out you know, various charges related to that, to the interference with you know, official proceedings and, and all that. But in a sense, what is being alleged is just a conspiracy to get people to do things that they ordinarily wouldn't be doing. Mm -hmm. You know, if this was just about whether Trump was inciting a crowd, that would be something. But this is way more than that. So Trump's attorney, John Loro, has been making the, the media arounds. He was on Face the Nation over the weekend, and he called this a, quote, Swiss cheese indictment and said he's going to seek a motion to dismiss all of these charges in the January 6th case. Do you see that happening? Uh, no, I, I give it uh, <laughs> less than a 5% chance of happening. You know, of course, that's what lawyers say. They talk big, and I'm sure that Trump demands his lawyers say stuff like that. I have no doubt that there will be a motion to dismiss coming. I mean, that's what happens in all criminal cases. But I uh, don't think that the the judge will grant it. There's just too much here. Um, this is too big of a, of a case. The, the judge is going to move it to trial. That being said, that's not, it's not an automatic win for Jack Smith for, for the special counsel. Mm -hmm. um, there mm -hmm. are defenses, uh, maybe not the ones that Trump's team is highlighting right at the moment, but uh, I don't expect this to be an easy case by any stretch of the imagination. Laura has also been saying, and Trump supporters have been saying this as well, and this is sort of the meat of what I wanted to talk to you about, that this is a question of the First Amendment. The president is immune as president, but also, you know, as an American citizen from just expressing publicly that he, his belief that the election was stolen and the results need, merited further investigation. What do you make of this First Amendment defense slash talking point? Yeah, I mean, the indictment itself says that he has a right, like every American, to speak publicly about the election and even claim falsely that, that there's been fraud. Trump's people want to make this about the First Amendment because it's a good talking point. People readily understand it. And there's an inclination by his supporters to believe he's being punished for merely speaking in politically. But that misses the fact that that the indictment really targets the conspiracy to change the results of a free election, to disenfranchise lots of citizens, to exploit many in the country for corrupt purposes. And that's the real issue. This isn't about a speech. If, if the indictment was just about the, the events of January 6th and a speech that incited the crowd, perhaps it would be a, a, about the mm -hmm. First Amendment. But this is about, you know, months of stuff that happened. This is about, you know, getting people to put their signatures on fraudulent election certificates. This is about getting uh, officials in, in certain battleground states to transmit it to, to the Capitol. And this is about, you know, trying to get Pence and, and everyone to recognize these fraudulent slates. This is about Trump and his cohorts being told 
you know, repeatedly, you know, there's just not evidence here. There, you know, Trump was told this by high-ranking officials. He was told this in, in legal proceedings. And hearing that, he acted in, you know, a way that, you know, could arguably be said to be corrupt, that he knew that he was doing wrong. And, you know, he went out and he tried to, to subvert the election anyway. So I think that's basically the real thing here. I, even if this case was about speech and what Trump said, there's no protection for speech in the service of a crime. There's countless cases and Supreme Court cases that say, say that, you know, all conspiracies involve speech, all fraud involves speech, mm -hmm. but free speech doesn't give you the right to, to engage in a conspiracy. Trump has gone on true social in recent days and he's attacked the judge in the case who was a Obama appointee. She was randomly assigned to this case. That would be U.S. District Judge Tanya Chotkin. He's criticized her on true social, unclear. He's also criticized Jack Smith and attacked him repeatedly. We don't know yet if there'll be any consequences to him doing that. Uh, typically, there would be for a defendant, but uh, so far, none. But he's also uh, demanded that uh, the venue for this trial be moved from Washington, D.C. Do you see that happening? I don't see that happening, although I will admit that uh, John Lauro gives a much bigger, better case for moving venue than Trump himself. Trump's whole case is, oh, you know, this is a, you know, heavily liberal leaning uh, district. I'm not going to get a fair trial here. No judge in his or her right mind is going to listen to that argument. Mm -hmm. John Lauro, Trump's attorney's argument is a little bit different. His argument is that it's too close to the events where, of January 6th, where everyone remembers. There's an emotional, um, mm -hmm. you know, resonance there. And so he can't get a fair trial because people might know people who were hurt there or, or it there's a, a psychic scar there. Mm -hmm. I don't believe that that's, uh, that argument's going to work at all either, but at least it's colorable. You know, in the end, I, I really think that, that Trump is just like seizing on the fact that he can't get a, a trial, a, a fair trial, you know, for political reasons. And at the end of the day, it's not going to be, you know, that substantial a part of, of his case. It, it's an argument that he can make the supporters to signal to them that he's being railroaded, but it, it's going to be dis, dispensed with like within, you know, weeks at the court. You know, the, the, mm. the judge will deny the motion to, to transfer. Eventually, the judge will deny a motion to dismiss. And what will be left is, you know, the real defense of the case, which is whether Trump acted corruptly or not. Mm. And I think that there's, you know, certainly good arguments to be made by Trump that he might not have acted corruptly. But I, but right now, he's not going to focus on, on that because it's so filled with nuance. And it's it's a wonky conversation that that doesn't won't resonate as well as some of these other things that he doesn't mm -hmm. get a fair trial or it's about free speech, you know, stuff like that. One other thing that John Loro, Trump's attorney, said is that he doesn't think this could or should go to trial next year, uh, you know, during the presidential race. And he, he said, again, on Face the Nation, he thinks a case of this magnitude, I mean, it should take two or three years before it goes to trial. And I mean, he does have a point. Like, this is a huge case. You know, how quickly can they turn this around and get it to trial? And secondly, like, are there concerns on the part of the prosecutors that having a trial this close to an election is problematic. 
Well, I, you know, it's definitely going to be tricky, but it's, not, it's only going to be tricky because the fact is that he's facing like four or five or six other trials. And so the scheduling <laughs> is, is, is so difficult. Uh, other than that, you could probably like pick a month next year and say, you know, this was before, you know, the race heats up and everything like that. The problem is there's so much on, on Trump's calendar. So, yeah, I, I mean, it's pretty obvious why. They want to delay the trial. I mean, if it, if it makes it past next November, there might not be a trial. Hmm. So delay, delay, delay. That's the name of the, st- the strategy. And I'm sure, you know, they'll do everything possible to try to get there. I don't think that it's untoward if the trial isn't delayed till after November. But then again, there's just so much going on. It's really hard to, you know, have a crystal ball and say for sure, uh, you know, what's going to be happening next year because this oh oh so unprecedented one more thing i want to ask you about before you go some of trump's republican opponents is sort of a way to kind of tiptoe around these legal questions and and honestly dodge the issue is to say that trump is old chris christie said this in an interview with pod save america he basically was like you know i think a judge you know might find him guilty but you know he's too old to go to prison uh, and Ron DeSantis has started calling him old as well, and Donald Trump is old. Is it common that a defendant who is found guilty might just be sentenced to like house arrest or something because they're too old? And is that even a plausible scenario here? I, I think it's common when it gets to the sentencing point to make arguments that are based on the defendant's condition and, and all that. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think it'll prevail upon the, upon the judge. I think it more depends on what exactly he's convicted of, mm-hmm. federal sentencing guidelines. Maybe if there is discretion, Trump will escape a prison term. Mm-hmm. But like you said, he's, I mean, like it's what, 76 counts right now. I mean, like, and, and we still, you know, expect indictments to come. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to say he's going to, you know, really escape jail. I mean, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> all right, Eric, thank you so much for explaining all of this to us. This is the best explainer I've heard so far on the federal indictment. Everyone go share it with your friends. Thanks, buddy. Thanks. I'll be uh, buying stuff at the banana stand too. <laughs> Love that. When we come back, Abby Livingston is here to talk about Senator Kirsten Sinema. Hey, Powers That Be listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated list of gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. I use Etsy all the time and have for years. I bought my brother some artwork. I bought my wife some jewelry. I even bought a rug for our living room on Etsy. I love it. But there's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for friends and family members around the holidays or birthdays in my life. And sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for a buddy who's just as into Cincinnati sports as I am, a hot cup of Joe, Joe Burrow mug. That's right. I found that on Etsy. It's amazing. 
Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be. netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben Landy here with Abby Livingston. Hey there. Hey, Ben. Abby, I think this is your first time with me here in the B block. I believe so. So we're recording on Tuesday afternoon. It looks like Georgia could deliver Trump his fourth indictment sometime today or later this week. But I've been dying to know what you think about this new Emerson College poll that shows that if Kirsten Cinema runs for re-election, which we don't know if she's going to run for re-election yet, but if she runs for re-election as an independent in Arizona, she will actually take away more votes from the Republican than from Congressman Ruben Gallego, who's the, the main Democratic challenger for her seat. I, I know this has been sort of a worry for Democrats that her being in as an independent could sort of skew the race depending on whether she takes away more votes from Dems or from Republicans. Now it sounds like her running would actually work in their favor. What do you make of all that? I was surprised to see this. It's a little bit counterintuitive. Um, she is sort of posturing as a John McCain type Arizonan in the Senate. So it kind of plays into what she's doing, although it may not be to her benefit. But I am still fairly skeptical. Um, and I think a lot of race watchers are. And I think the smartest people in politics just straight up admit they're agnostic on this race, which most people in politics, reporters, consultants, they like to predict and show that they knew this ahead of time. But this is just an extremely complicated race. My friend, the Senate, Senate analyst, Jessica Taylor of the Cook Political Report, calls this her asterisk race. I think this is just highly unpredictable, which is incredibly crazy because this seat, just like every other seat in a 50-50 Senate, could determine who is uh, you know, which party has the majority. So this is volatile. Um, and I think it's still very unpredictable. Yeah, part of the wild card factor here is just how cinema has evolved as a politician pr pretty quickly in terms of how she's been courting Republicans, she's been cozying up to Mitch McConnell and so on. But that's also sort of cascaded down in terms of how she's perceived in the press and among voters. There was definitely this time when she did have this reputation as sort of this maverick, iconoclast, a centrist who could buck either party. But it doesn't seem like she's been able to successfully pull off that pivot without alienating more Democrats than the number of Republicans she's won over. Yeah, I mean, I think 
I don't really understand her strategy. What I will say is she is a very smart woman. I know she is frustrating to many, many people, but this is this is a very educated woman. And one of her colleagues when she was in the house used a word to describe her that has always stuck in my brain, which is wily. I think she's a very wily politician. At the same time, I don't know where this is going, and I don't know if she's going to follow through on a run. But what I can say is in more recent conversations I've had in the Senate Democratic universe, she's not reviled in that caucus. I I think she is a functional member. She generally supports the party. And also, since the Republicans have taken control of the House, it's not like the entire Democratic agenda will live and die on what she and Joe Manchin want to do. It's already stopped in the House. So I think there's a lot of pressure off. And I just think generally, Senate Democrats are kind of giving this one space and to see where it plays out. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I feel like Cinema was perceived more as an antagonist among Democrats back when the House was still in, in Nancy Pelosi's hands. Absolutely. And it's let up, it seems like. And I, I think she's a relatively productive person in the Senate in the view of some people in the Senate Democratic world. Well, speaking of her reputation in the caucus, she has some bad blood with Gallego, right? They, they used to work together in Arizona. They both overlapped in the state legislature and they were both coming up. I I covered Arizona about 10, 12 years ago, and they were sort of the up and comers new guard. This is when Arizona was indisputably a Republican state. It had a, I guess at one point, a Democratic governor, but this was a Republican state. And these two were the young kind of hip Democrats. And back then, circa 2012, I think you most people observing Arizona Democratic politics thought these two were going to end up in a Senate race against each other someday. I just don't think we would have imagined that it would be an independent and a Democrat rather than two people battling it out in the Democratic primary. And so I think just like anywhere else in any state capital where there's some am- ambition that, you know, I think they've been kind of keeping an eye, side eye on each other as they've risen through the ranks of really national politics. Well, speaking of that potential race, how is uh, cinema's fundraising been so far? She's doing pretty okay, given that she does not have the party behind her. Um, And the reason that is a big deal is there are some PACs that only give to a certain party. And, you know, and a lot of politicians at this point don't take PACs. But I went through her a lot of her FEC report from July And it looked like someone was really working hard to get donors. They were many of them were Arizona based. They were not the regular suspects of Democratic donors. And so she raised about one point seven million, which in this day and age is not a lot of money for a Senate candidate in a quarter. But it showed me she's working hard and we're still not sure if she's going to run. And that this is raising money is difficult. And it seems like she is she at least has her heart in that part of it. At the same time, it's what she's done very strategically and intelligently is she has been raising money since she was elected in 2018 in the years that she was not running for election and she has banked it. And so she's got, I believe, I I could be wrong, but it's north of $10 million in her account. I, I think it may be even higher than that. But this is money she has saved. Candidate money means more than super PAC money in these races because they get a lower advertising rate for television ads. And so right now she has much more money than Ruben Gallego. We still don't know who the Republican nominee will be, but at the same time, she's been she's been a penny pincher and she is in a very strong position for now. But it would not surprise me if Gallego catches up with her in the next six months. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and $10 million is not a small amount of money for one of these races. 
But I'm glad you brought up this this question of the party infrastructure because it really does illustrate why true independents are so rare in American politics and also why the rhetoric matters so much. I mean, we have a handful of politicians in Congress who are technically independent, but caucus entirely with one party. You've got guys like Manchin who, who vote with Biden basically 90% of the time. I think Sinema has actually voted with Biden even more of the time, but she's certainly perceived as sort of hostile to Democrats. And then dropping out of the party, it was really the ultimate middle finger. And, 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 and not only that, to your point, it cuts her off from the entire party machinery, that fundraising apparatus. It's really hard to operate in that space when you're when you're cut off. It is. I mean, it really does matter to have the party behind you, even if it's just the implicit seal of approval. But what I can say is, and I did not cover Senate politics closely in this era, but I remember a lot of rage at someone like Joe Lieberman, who made some similar moves and which the people who actually care about passing, you know, confirming judges and getting things through the Senate, they're just not as bothered by her this cycle as they were last cycle or really the activists on the outside of the Senate. And so I I think, again, she's pretty smart in how she deals with people. She's very strategic. And so I think it's a much more complicated picture than it looks like at first blush. Yeah, it looks like Lieberman is the the founding chairman of No Labels, which I'd missed. So I guess that's been one of his primary avocations since leaving the Senate. Yeah. And I mean, just like when he was in the Senate toward the end of his time, he's stirring the pot once again, which is you do have to step back and remember he was the Democratic nominee in 2000. And so it is it has been quite the bend of history 23 years later. Well, if Cinema doesn't end up running for re-election, and if she doesn't end up as the uh, unity ticket candidate for no labels, maybe she can ask for a job from uh, from her pal Joe Lieberman. We shall see. Abby, thanks as always for uh, for joining us. This was fun. Thanks for having me, Ben. It was fun. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.